All right. Well, in the interest of time, I think we're going to get going. I want to, at the close of our session, leave about 10 minutes for Q&A. We're going to go to 10.30, and then we have a break at 10.30. Is that correct? So I didn't mess anything up. If anybody thinks it's incorrect, let me know now. Um, but yeah, 10 minutes at the end. So once I get to 10.20, if I'm starting to go long, then somebody stop me and we'll... We'll go into some Q&A. I didn't design this session to be terribly long, but more just to focus on the practicals of culture and language acquisition. Some of the mechanics we'll get into, we're not going to get into phonetics and phonemics, the actual systems for learning a language that's never been learned before primarily. We are going to talk a little bit about language schools when you get to the field, benefits of language schools and drawbacks of language schools. But I'm going to give you just an overview kind of from a church's perspective and then if you are a learner, if you're actually going to be applying these things overseas. So anyways, let's pray before we get going and then we'll dive into the material. Lord Jesus, thank you so much that you are the great communicator. You have designed us to be communicative beings. Lord, you never communicated in a way that human beings didn't understand. We did not apply it in the way that you saw fit, Lord, but you always communicated clearly. And Lord, your ambassadors are meant to communicate clearly for the sake of the gospel. If the gospel were not so precious, if it was not so possible to get it wrong, then we could do it in a poor way, Lord. But for you, as the master communicator, your ambassadors must also be good communicators. So we pray this morning that you would work in each one of us, help us to think through these things, to apply them when necessary. And Lord, as we move out and as we start working with cross-cultural situations, Lord, and as we have ministers sent from our churches or we ourselves go to different locations, I pray that we would be convinced of the necessity of clear communication. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your word and how it guides us even in these things. In your name we pray. Amen. All right. So I teach one of the classes down at Radius. It's called CLA Practicum. CLA stands for Culture and Language Acquisition practicum. One of the benefits of the RADIUS program being located, let everybody come on in, Um, one of the benefits of RADIUS being located in Tijuana is that we get to actually practice what you learn in class. You'll do classes from 8 to 12 and then from 1 o'clock to 5 o'clock we'll actually have you go into the community and you'll apply the techniques that we're teaching you in class in a cross-cultural environment with unsaved people that don't know what you're doing. This is very similar to what will happen when you make it to the field someday. You have the added benefit of Spanish being an easy language. For those of you that don't know, Arabic and Thai, Laotian, uh, Turkish, and there's another couple in there. Those are the top five most difficult languages out there. Spanish is easy. You're talking about top five and easy. You're talking about Melanesian Pidgin, Bahasa. Pit, Spanish is somewhere in the top ten of the easiest languages you can learn. So you can apply these techniques, and that's the class that I teach down there at Radius for this time being. We've got another guy that's going to come in and co-teach with me in another six months. But teaching students how to learn a language. If you're going to take the gospel somewhere where it has never been before, we like to define it down at Radius not as unreached people groups, but as unreached language groups. If you're going to take the gospel to an unreached language group in this day and age, you're going to have to learn two languages. You're going to have to learn the language of the country that you're going to. If you're going to Thailand, you're going to have to learn Thai. 
then you have to learn the specific unreached people group within that country, their particular language. That's the facts of getting to unreached people groups. There are thousands, millions of unreached people that speak Thai, that speak Mandarin, that speak Arabic. But if you're talking about unreached, unengaged language or people groups, you're going to have to learn two languages. And you're going to have to learn them pretty well if you're going to be a competent communicator. So we talk about all those issues. Again, this is distilling down one of the threads that runs all the way from day one at Radius to the closing session is CLA practicum. So I'm taking everything from the 10-month session and trying to cram some of the principles down into about 45 minutes. So that's one of the things that we face students with, the reality that you will need to learn two languages. And squaring with that if you want to work with unreached people groups, if you want to work with orphans, if you want to work in a hospital, if you want to work with the sex trade and getting people out of the sex trade, all wonderful things, that's great. You don't have to learn two languages. But if you're going to plant a church where Christ has not been named, you're going to have to learn two languages in this day and age. So that's why we place such a high value on culture and language fluency. And we're going to define fluency a little bit further on. So keys to getting fluent before you start, before you start in language study. And again, some of this is tailored towards churches and how churches view fluency, whether they even, it pops on their radar. And so you know some of these keys before we get into it. Number one, you have to be convinced that fluency is a must. If you think fluency is optional, it's a good idea, statistics show us that you'll never get fluent. Unless it is a bedrock foundation, I will get fluent, then most people don't get there. The reason is because it's so incredibly difficult. It is very difficult to learn a language. The older you get, the harder it gets. We see statistically right around 32 to 35, that's usually the drop-off point from when people can acquire a new language fast enough to where they can actually present the gospel later on in it. 32 to 35, those are your magic years where your ability to actually retain a second language falls off dramatically. Yes, there are a thousand exceptions out there. The majority, though, of the population from the Western world, 32 to 35, your ability to retain starts to fall off dramatically. So those windows, that's why we talk about missions to unreached people group, kind of being a young person's game. Getting there before you hit your 32s to 35s. Know the difference between market fluency and worldview fluency. This would be a key before you head to an unreached people group and defining what kind of fluency you want to achieve to get your oil changed, to go buy pistachio nuts in the market, to get some garments, to say hi, to ask for the bathroom. Most people in this day and age would classify that as fluency. We would classify that as market fluency. You can get around a market. You can do a handful of things in the culture. You can navigate social situations. You can do things in the culture. Presenting the gospel, please, who's kidding who? Getting into Q&A off the cuff. People are asking you abstract questions. What if? How does this work? You're able to speak in terminology that is going to speak towards the future. You know tenses. Most languages don't have three tenses. They usually have five or six. Some of them up in the, the teens. You can speak in that. That's worldview fluency. Being able to speak at a worldview level. That's the kind of fluency you want to get to if you're going to be a gospel proclaimer. Because again, you're presenting a worldview shift. 
So if you're going to be presenting a worldview shift, you're going to actually bring their worldview and the gospel into intentional conflict, you better be able to speak at that level. So we really define strictly the difference between market fluency and worldview fluency, and there are objective measurement scales to judge that, and we'll get into those in this session. Number three, know the goal. We talked about this a little bit already, whether you're going for church planting or not. If you're not going to plant a church, then fluency is optional. But if you're going to plant a church among an unreached people group, pastors, missions pastors, if that's the goal that your missionaries are setting out to do, fluency is not optional if you want the gospel to be clear. If you are okay with it being unclear, which I'm assuming many of you are not, all of you are not, then fluency is optional. But if fluency is on the table, then gospel clarity is on the table as well. And we'll make that case very strongly down at Radius. I'll try and talk to some of that later on, especially in my session today. Getting trained in language learning basics, phonetics, phonemics, linguistics. Phonetics is every sound that the human mouth can make, there's a corresponding symbol. Most countries, when you go into them, if you're going to Jordan, like one of our graduate families is heading off to do, if you're going to China, like another few families going off to do, a few of them are going to Thailand, some of them are going to Laos, there are language schools there. And you can learn the gateway language through the system there. Usually language schools are excellent at language, they're very poor at culture. They typically don't know how to learn another culture to a worldview level. But you better know how to understand phonetics, phonemics, and linguistics for the second language that you're going to have to learn of that unreached people group. National languages, readily available. Second, minority languages, that's where you're going to have to roll up your arms, you're going to have to roll up your sleeves, and you're going to have to dive into things that you have been trained in prior. If you don't know phonetics, phonemics, and linguistics, you still possibly can learn a language. This makes it significantly easier to be able to take this mass of sounds, this mass of data, and distill it down and to get to the point, especially if you're going to produce a New Testament translation. How do you develop an orthography? How do you learn to get to the point to where you can quantify this and then break it down? How do you know that they'll read it, that their mind is actually tracking with how you're putting the words together? Without these, without these, this training, phonetics, phonemics, and linguistics, it's very difficult. It is doable, but it's incredibly difficult. So if you're going to learn a minority people group language, I would greatly commend you to learn those particular skills. And number five, keep going, keep going, keep going. If you're going to get fluent, it's going to be a measure of discipline and persistence. Discipline and persistence are going to be two of the biggest values for the language learner that's going to see fluency. Everyone starts off with great hopes, great ambitions of getting fluent. It's the people who can fight through the boredom, fight through the sleepiness, fight through the repetition. They're the ones who end up getting that minority language. Again, majority languages, Mandarin, Laotian, Cantonese, those are majority languages. Language schools are available. We're not talking about those. We're talking about that second context of the unreached people group slash language group that you're trying to get the gospel to. Those are the tough ones. There's a reason why the last 3,100 roughly languages on the face of the earth are the last 3,100. They're difficult. It's going to take special people that are trained and that are ready to lay down their lives, sacrifice, and spend the time that are going to actually get in there, see translations completed, see churches planted that will outlive them. And that will be another session later on. So those are the five things prior to getting fluent that I would talk about. 
any church or any uh, missionary that's endeavoring to get fluent in those secondary situations. All right, let's dive into just a couple of verses. 2 Corinthians 5, 18-20, we see the necessity. Paul's talking about the ministry, and Chad referenced this in his session. He says this, All this is from God who has reconciled us to Himself through Christ and has given us, who? The church, the disciples, the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to Himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And He has committed to us the message of reconciliation. Who? The churches, the disciples that He's left behind. We have been given the ministry of reconciliation. Dogs, rocks, stones, angels. No, 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 no. People see dreams. They see visions. It's to the gospel ambassador to bring the gospel. And we never see in the New Testament an angel delivering the gospel. We see them pointing to, go to this guy on this street, go to this person, he will lead you, he has a message for you. Angels don't bring the gospel. Human beings do. Disciples of Jesus Christ do. Then he finishes it off and he says, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. Oh my goodness. Think about that just for half a second. The God of creation, the God of all history is going to make His appeal, the gospel appeal, through your mouth. Through the members of your churches, through their mouths, will come the gospel. And how you phrase things, how you understand things, do you speak with an accent? Do you sound white? Do you sound like an outsider? Do you even sound at all? Can you communicate that? You're carrying with you the message of life. Through you, through your members, will come the message of reconciliation. It's as though God is speaking through you. Then the Holy Spirit is able to use those words and to actually see someone change from death to life. But through your mouth will come the message of reconciliation. What an incredible responsibility. 1 Corinthians 14, 7-11 says this, Paul's making the case, he's talking about tongues, but he gets on a little tangent here, and this tangent's helpful for us in the realm of language. He says this, Even in the case of lifeless things that make sounds, such as the pipe or the harp, how will anyone know what tune is being played unless there is a distinction in the notes? Those of you guys that are musicians, far out of my league, you know there's a distinction in the notes. Otherwise, it doesn't make sense. Paul's referencing even military people. When the trumpet sounds, what does it mean? Do we grab the spears or do we head to bed? Who knows unless there's a distinction in the notes. Again, if the trumpet does not sound a clear call, who will get ready for battle? So it is with you. Unless you speak intelligible words with your tongue, how will anyone know what you are saying? You will just be speaking into the air. Undoubtedly, there are all sorts of languages in the world, yet none of them is without meaning. If then I do not grasp the meaning of what someone is saying, I am a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker is a foreigner to me. If you aren't fluent, you're a foreigner to the speaker. And here's the kicker, guys. Your God is a foreigner as well. He'll always be the God of the Americans, the God of the people who came in. He won't be their God because you speak in a way that represents Him as an outsider. You'll be a foreigner to them. They'll be foreigners to you unless you can clearly communicate, unless you know the meaning of what they're saying and they can comprehend the meaning of what you're saying. So with that as a backdrop... 
to be competent, clear communicators as we step into these situations. If we take the gospel somewhere, and I'll make this point in my session coming up next, the dominant world religion in our day and age is not Islam. It's not Christianity. It's not Catholicism. The head and shoulders dominant religion in our world today in 2018 is syncretism. The mixing of two religions. The existing religion with an introduced one. And unfortunately, gospel ambassadors have been responsible for more syncretism. Good-hearted, Christ-loving, coming from wonderful Jesus-honoring churches that didn't take their time to understand the message they were speaking into. Didn't understand the context they were speaking to and unwittingly brought Jesus in as one of the gods. One of the people that we believe in. We've got this God for the crops, we've got this God for this, and we've got this Jesus God that will help us when we die. He's one of. He's been amalgamated in. We've created a new religion and we don't even know it because people know how to put their hands together. They know that they've got to close their eyes and they know that he likes this word called amen. And we never understood the implications of what we were bringing. We didn't know the context we were speaking into. We were a foreigner with a foreign message that never took the time to become an insider. So we put a high value at Radius on being a clear gospel communicator for the sake of gospel clarity, because we don't want you being one of the statistics of creating syncretism on accident. No one intentionally would ever do that. No one. I believe that with the bottom of my heart. There are no churches, no agencies, no missionaries, no pastors that would want to see their members heading overseas unintentionally teaching what we will say honestly is a false gospel because it's never truly Christ. But if you don't know their language and you don't know their culture, unwittingly you fall into that camp. This is why we put such a premium on this. So, getting from, this is my wife back in the day, um, getting from learning language symbols, getting your phonetics, your phonemics, getting those linguistic tools honed down to the point to where you can speak, you can teach, you can mentor, you can disciple people in a foreign language from a minority language culture. You've learned that national language. If you've got a business platform, you're able to work with government officials. Your business is turning a profit. Then you get to that final location where there is no gospel witness, there are no disciples, and most importantly, there is no church, and you start learning that language. To get from there to there, that's what we're going to talk about primarily today. So, 15 minutes. All right. Day one in language. Shoot for five PEs a day. I'm going to go through these real quick, and then I will talk about what they are. PEs, if I was moving into a context, and again, this is what we spend 10 months on down in radius, but for the sake of 15 minutes, this is how I would boil it down. Number one, I'd shoot for five PEs in a day. PEs are practical expressions. I'd learn five practical expressions a day. I would be legalistic about that. I would actually learn those particular things for five. I'd learn five a day, and I would make sure that I continue to learn them, and I'd have a system to go over them. I'd start building relationships for the sake of language, so that as I progress into the higher stages, I have a broad net to appeal from. I'm not looking at one particular demographic. I'm not looking at one economic strata. I'm looking all across the board. I'm building relationships in a variety of different contexts with a variety of different people. Number three, I'm starting to vet and hire language helpers for regular language sessions. Most of the world today, missionaries and expat 
diplomats, government workers, if they're going to get serious in a minority language, they have language sessions by paid language helpers. At the beginning, you're very difficult to listen to. You sound horrible. People don't naturally want to hang out with you and practice with you because you sound less than a two-year-old. You sound like a six-month-year-old. You're horrible at the language. Everybody is. That's just the way it is. So you pay people that will actually sit with you and you can go through a system. There are many systems out there. We teach one called BEC, Becoming Equipped to Communicate. The GPA, some of you may have heard that, Growing Participator Approach. That's another approach. There's the Green Book Approach. There's a host of different approaches out there to learning another language. Most of them are going to be predicated off of a language helper that will be immensely bored his first year, but he will stay with you because he's getting paid. Number four, get outside, meet, interact, identify everything about your neighbors. I would go outside, I would start seeing the environment that I'm in, I would start seeing what are the key things, what are the daily routines. We'll talk a little bit more about that later. But getting to identify and interact, whoa, to the language helper or to the language student that learns language in an office that sits down and burrows down and learns language. It's appealing to Westerners more than you realize. You know why? Because your ego is at stake. You sound foolish. You sound ridiculous. Not for six months, not for nine months, usually for about a year and a half, two years, you sound silly. So it's much nicer to sit in an air-conditioned office and to dissect grammar. Woe to the language helper that does that. Woe the language student that does that because you don't get out there if by the end you speak in the tongues of men and angels and nobody knows you what's the point get out there be involved with your neighbors it'll help you later on in language as well and start your listening collection listening collection is basically a collection of recordings from these language sessions that you learn how to quantify what is a good language session, you can repeat that over. In many contexts, you can't get five language helper sessions a week. So what do you do? You record the things based off of that, and those are the things that you put into your listening collection as you're sweeping the floor, as you're going out, it's working in your car, you've got it in your earphones, you're getting the language into your mind, and there's ways that we do that. I don't have the time to get into that. Day one in culture. If I was starting out, what I would do, the first five things I do, day one, when I hit the ground in my foreign context, I'm in that second language group now, I would begin to identify their daily routines. What does this people do on a regular basis? For our context, where I was located in Papua New Guinea, the Yembis get up in the morning, they paddle the canoe out, they check the nets, then they go to the, uh, they go to the garden, they check their plants, check the tobacco, make sure the kids didn't steal any in the night, then they come back to the village, they fry up the fish that got caught in the net, then they start going out and they do sago work for about five hours, they come back in the evening, break up a bunch of firewood, and then they cook some sago cakes on the, uh, what do you call it, fire there, and then they stay up till about two o'clock in the morning, and then they go to bed, and they do it all the next day. You identify these daily routines and you start to follow them. You start to be a participant in them. You start a culture file. You start looking at the 14 major areas of culture. We'll dive into that in a little bit. And you start filing that away. And you start building relationships. That's not a typo. It's a repeat. You're building relationships for the language side and for the culture side. You're getting both sides. You're building those relationships up to where they're strong enough. You begin identifying key areas of the culture. And then you prepare for census. You're going to do a census of the area that you're located in, if that's a village, if that's a township, if that's a little square. 
kinship charts, knowing how people are related to each other. How do they see each other? In Yembi Yembi, where we were located for 15 years, it was a subtle insult to call somebody by their name. We didn't figure that out until we were in there for almost a year. One year to figure out we've been insulting people for almost an entire year. You know how you call people? You call them by how you're related to them. Brother, mother, sister, aunt, cousin, second cousin, third cousin, third cousin on my mother's side, third cousin on my father's side. You're related to nearly everyone and you didn't even know it. You've got to know these things and so you dive into the kinship charts. And then you identify who are the leaders in this community. Getting to understand who are the ones who are ultimately making the decisions. Where do people go when they get sick? How do they realize who's in charge? Who settles social disputes? This was my first language helper. This is my father-in-law. Our fathers were too embarrassed because we didn't know their language, so our father-in-laws took on the job of teaching us how to learn the language and just understanding his position, his role in the society. You will have people that will be key for you as you make that transition from the foreigner, from the outsider, from the unknown, to getting to be known. And there will be key men that will step in and eventually, Lord willing, they'll get saved. That's a whole other story. I won't get into that. The mindset of the early language learner, number one, he's dying to his ego. We've talked about this a little bit. He's willing to be laughed at. Learning language is an exercise in dying to your pride. If you cannot die to your pride, if you can't allow someone to laugh at you and laugh at you over and over and over and over again, laughing at you because you sound silly, because you are silly, you're learning a language that you weren't born with, And these aren't people that were raised to be gentle. These aren't believers. These are unbelievers. And typically unbelievers, when they're making fun of people, once they've passed that point to the excitement of your new skin, of your different context, wears off, some of those things can be rather derogatory. Brace yourself. Die to your ego. Be willing to laugh at yourself. The people who are the most uptight, who guard that, usually don't learn a language. They usually fail because they're not willing to let their ego go. Comprehension precedes production. In order to understand something, you have to hear it nearly 30 times in context. Not out of context, in context. It's being heard and understood in context. 30 times before you start to comprehend it. Here's the kicker. and In order to produce it correctly, you have to say it nearly 60 times. Producing it incorrectly can happen immediately after comprehension. Producing it correctly, meaning you sound like them. You sound like the local dialect, the local context. You have to produce it nearly 60 times. You get that repetition in there, so you might as well start early. Being disciplined, working through the pain, the boredom, the sleepiness, and the repetition. I'm going to reference this multiple times because this is usually why people stop learning language. And this is what happens, pastors, missionaries, potential missionaries. Whenever somebody decides, I've learned enough, I'll keep going and I'll start teaching, I'll start working with the Word of God, I'll start translating, I'll start my business. Whenever somebody starts that, The statistics are that over 90% of the time, they never advance past the level when they start ministry. You don't advance by diving into ministry. You plateau. You don't go further. The boredom gets too heavy. The sleepiness, the missions rep is saying, you're better than everyone on your team. Present the gospel. Don't do it. Unless you are worldview fluent, don't do it. You will cap there. 
That's what the numbers show us. You will cap at whatever level you stop learning language. Be disciplined. Push through the pain until you get to that point to where you are worldview fluent. Cultivating the attitude of a learner. To be a learner. To have that learner's attitude. Oh, for that person. Not just in language and culture study. As a co-worker. To have a co-worker who has a learner's attitude. Being willing to learn. It ties so tightly with the first one. A learner doesn't mind being laughed at. A learner is willing to subject himself to the same procedure over and over and over again. Knowing that the end goal is, I will get there. I will get there. But to have that heart of a learner, so key. Okay, I've broken this into two swaths. Early language, early culture, late language, late culture. And then questions that I would think about if I was a church pastor. And then we'll be done and we'll open it up for Q&A. Early language. Focusing on word, phrase, sentence level, comprehension, and controlled environments. You start off with words. You can't comprehend phrases. You can't comprehend sentences, so you go for word level at the beginning. Maybe you get a few. The only uh, exceptions to this would be PEs, practical expressions. You're getting a full phrase, where is the bathroom? Taxi, take me to this location. And you memorize that. That's a practical expression. But for the most part, you're starting off at the word level, you work your way up to the phrase level, then eventually to the sentence level, to where you're being able to put full thoughts into speech and in comprehension first and then speaking, speaking afterwards. Comprehension and controlled environments. Number two, good language helper sessions and listening collection time. You are majoring on those sessions. As you practice language helper sessions, you get better at them. As you do recordings with a recorder, a voice recorder, whether that's your iPhone, whether that's something else, you get better at them. This is one of the huge advantages of Radius. You get 10 months of practice every time. Our students graduated on Friday. At the end of it, they say, I know what I did here, and I know what I'll change. I know what I'll keep. You've got 10 months to practice in an easy language in Spanish. When you get to the field, if you haven't had that training, work out the kinks. Get better at them as you go along. Your language helper sessions and getting good collection time. Pay close attention to pronunciation. This is the fault of most Western missionaries, diplomats, and politicians as well. Most Westerners sound like they're from the West. They never overcome that hurdle to where they sound local. Loser. Most Westerners don't get to the point to where they sound like a local because they never put much time into the pronunciation. My son, who is 18 years old, he's done five years of high school Spanish in the public school system, or excuse me, he's done three years over in New Guinea and two years in the public school system in California, and he comes down to Radius and he speaks Spanish at the beginning better than most of our students. His accent is horrific because the public school system doesn't put any emphasis on pronunciation. They put a lot of emphasis on grammar and on production, being able to put it out there, but the pronunciation aspect gets lost. Unless you focus on pronunciation, especially when you get to that gateway language, that initial language, Thai, Mandarin, whatever, you'll always sound like an outsider. Pronunciation is key. So keep that as you go to the next context as well. 40 hours a week minimum. 40 hours a week minimum if you're full-time in it. If you have a business, if you have those types of concerns, 
that's not up to you. I would encourage you to get as many hours as possible. But when you get to that second context, if you're buckling down, if your team has cut you loose, they're looking after the business, you're the one that's supposed to get the language, it's time to knuckle down 40 hours a week minimum. Minimum. Anything over 40 and you start to get the freebies, the things that you didn't work for, that you didn't memorize, because you're spending so much time in the language, the ones that you didn't push hard, they start to come faster and they start to come easier. But if you're not doing 40, and think about it from the perspective of the people that are paying to see you stay out there on the field. Your supporters are back in the United States, most of them doing jobs that are 40 hours a week minimum to keep you over there. As a gospel ambassador, surely you can put that level of time into what you have been called to do as well. Now, there may be mitigating circumstances. Business would be one of those. Somehow I keep losing. Um, But you want to make sure that you're trying to get that as much. All right. In Muslim context, and I'm just going to make a note here because sometimes people go, well, that would work in a lot of other contexts. I can see how that works in the MBMB, but in Muslim context... It's going to be a little bit different. Be ready to identify yourself. In Yembi Yembi, where we worked, we never had to identify ourselves as Christ followers. If we said that, they wouldn't know what we're talking about anyways. In Muslim context, you will. You'll have to identify yourself, but don't engage in conversations you can't handle. Identification purposes in Muslim context, very important. Getting past that, those are the things that we would recommend holding back on because you're not ready for those things yet. Waiting till you bring some of those key elements of the gospel into it. All right, early culture. Begin gathering information on the 14 major areas of culture. These are the 14 major areas of culture, transportation, work, economics, religion, education and knowledge, art and entertainment, agriculture and food health and medical, social organization, physical environment, clothing and adornment, tools and technology, government, law and social conflict, human biology and life stages. Ask any one of the recent Radius grads and they will say these by heart, or they should, they've gotten quizzed enough on them. Um, They should know these, they should be pounded into their brain. Everything that they felt, everything that they went through, every event that they were a part of fell into one of these categories. When they go through that, how they categorize that, how they write that in their, in their culture file, all of that comes through and later on we distill that into conclusions and it helps towards presenting the gospel later on. But for you to have a good grasp of the culture of your people, these are the 14 areas that we would dive into. Don't make judgment calls. Early in culture, somehow I'm not there. Okay. Kind of got frozen here. Right. I'll just keep trucking. Um, don't make judgment calls early in culture uh, because you don't know enough to make a judgment call. You don't have the right to lay down. There will be certain situations that you're going to want to intervene in. You don't want to jump into those things until you're further on in the culture and you can understand those things at a deeper level. We'll talk about understanding somebody's worldview in Radius. That will take at least three months to walk through how to understand somebody at the worldview level, but making judgment calls prior to understanding somebody at that level is very dangerous. Observe, then participate, always document. You observe the culture, 
then you try your best to participate. Again, we're not talking about things that are contrary to what a believer would hold to, but if you can go and you can work with them, if you if they have a taxi business, riding around the taxi, if they have a, a business uh, making cardboard boxes, going with them, if they're going up the coconut tree, if they're going out to go check the nets in the canoe, you're going with them, you're participating. The more senses you involve in the language learning process and in the culture learning process, the faster it comes. And document these things, whether that's your culture file or whether that's your language file or whether those are PEs. And then engage in the daily routines. Again, this was us heading out to go check the family nets, the user family nets. We got in there. Hey, guess what? They check nets every day. That's what they do. Women don't stand in canoes. Women sit. That's the law. It's ironclad. Men stand. Men never sit. They always stand. Guess how long it took me to stand. 215-pound guys in really wiggly canoes don't stand very easily. It took me months to get to that point to where, okay, we're going to participate in this daily routine. This is what we do. We go out. We check family nets. My boy is only about five years old there, so that's him standing too. Going out, getting involved in these regular routines. These are some of our grads in India going out, participating in the daily routines. Knowing what your people do, what they eat, what they don't eat, what the sports they are that watch, why everybody is fixated on the World Cup except for this country, why everyone is into different things. You better know in India that you're going there who Sachin Tindalkar is. He's the most famous cricketer that that country has ever had. Cricket is huge national sport of India. You're into those things, the daily routines, the things that matter to them. College football takes a back seat because you're not in Minnesota anymore. You're not in San Diego anymore. You're getting to understand that culture at a deeper level by participating in some of these things. And keep your eye on critical areas that will need to be addressed when it's time to teach. You're not teaching yet. There's a radius grad in here I would ask why and the answer would be because you can't teach yet. You don't have enough language. You're an early language study. You don't teach until you're able to communicate clearly. But you're keeping your eye out for those critical areas where the gospel is going to come into impact with their world. You're able to recognize the things that are going to be sticking points. If there's no sticking points in their culture, you haven't done your culture study. Because every culture has sticking points with the gospel. And you better be able to identify those and know them clearly. Later language. We're talking about the finishing stages. Phrases to sentences to texts and finally to discourses. You're able to speak at the discourse level. You know how to start a story. You know how to close a story. When I say to you, once upon a time, what does everybody think? Is this a true story I'm about to tell you? What is it? It's a fairy tale. How do you know that? Because you know that's how, in the Western world, we start discourses that are fairy tales, that are false tales, usually that we tell children. Every culture has their markers, their indicators. This is the type of genre that we're heading into. This is the type of discourse that we're heading into. You know those markers. When you're getting to that point, you better not open the book of Romans the way you open the book of Acts. You'll translate it, it'll make sense to you, and nobody will read it. Because it doesn't sound right, and it won't be accurate to the translation. I'll do a translation thing tomorrow, uh, one of the breakout sessions tomorrow. But being able to understand the language at a discourse level, a must for the translator, a must for the teacher. Know how they tell a joke, how to explain how to teach, how they argue, how they make a point. 
know and do. Know how they tell a joke. The Yembies tell jokes and it is the weirdest thing in the world to North Americans. They tell the same joke over and over and over and it's funny every time. It's funny every time. It's just the way it is. Every time it's funny and they have all these things. They switch the gender on things. Okay, She went out and cut down the canoe and you're talking about your good buddy here that went out and cut the canoe and he's a very large man funny every time. You know how they tell jokes. You know how they go after people. You know how they laugh. You know how they argue. You know how they make a point. What is the main information load? What is the what is the secondary information load in a story? Everything can't be a main point in a story. How do they put main points and how do they put secondary points? You better know these things if you're going to be a relevant gospel communicator to get to that point to where you can communicate clearly in that language and they know what you mean. Unless they understand the meaning, you're a foreigner. You're a foreigner to them, and they're a foreigner to you, and your God is a foreigner as well. Storytelling with various genres. You know how to do that. We talked about that a little bit. Storytelling, uh, you know how to do different, uh, you know how to do procedural text, explanatory text, auditory text. What is the book of Romans? Is the Romans, the book of Romans, is that a narrative? It is not a narrative. A narrative is a story. The book of Romans is Paul teaching. That's an auditory text. He's teaching. There's a couple narrative portions that slip in there. But for the most part, that is an auditory genre. That sounds different than other books. You know these things, and you're able to communicate that in their language. You know how to construct and communicate complex and abstract concepts. Think about the concepts that you will need to communicate. Justification, sanctification, burning bushes, walking on water, a beast with seven heads and ten horns that spews water to overtake a pregnant woman. Can you do these things? Or will you be relying on a translator? Will you be entrusting the message of life to someone that you're not sure what he understands? Most of the downfall we find in people who use translators, they don't know where the translator stands. And the worst part is they don't know what the translator said. Translators are difficult to work with. They're excellent to work with if you work for Microsoft or McDonald's. They're very difficult if you're working with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because the intonations, the little details matter. They don't matter for Microsoft. They matter for us. Get a regular language evaluation if at all possible. Later in language, get a regular language evaluation if possible. Have somebody who has done language evaluations fly over. Home church pastors, I'll put this in the recommendations. Help your missionaries by having them get objective tests done. This is the actful testing standards. A version of this is what I did for language consulting for 10 years, going into different locations, different teams, giving them evaluations. One of the benefits of the RADIUS program is you learn Spanish at the end of the first semester. We will test you. We'll give you a language evaluation. Here's where you're at. Then at the end of the second semester, you get another evaluation, and you progress as you go along. First evaluation tells you you're really strong in grammar, you're really weak on your pronunciation, you're really weak at storytelling. Let's advance in those levels. Let's keep the grammar going ahead as well, or whatever it is for each student. But you get to know where you're at. 
novice low, novice mid, novice high. That's where a lot of people can come over. They can say a few expressions, they can do a few things, but they can't communicate much past that. Intermediate low, intermediate mid, intermediate high. You can start to tell stories. Intermediate high, you can tell stories and people understand the point and you're getting the tenses right. You're not screwing up the tenses. Advanced low, advanced mid, and finally getting to advanced high, you're starting to speak at the discourse level. We would release people in the mission organization that I was with at the advanced high level to start translating and teaching. To make sure that you have somebody that can evaluate you. The U.S. government does this. Most Fortune 500 companies that have subsidiaries overseas have their employees tested if they're going to work in the local language. Missions pastors, missions organizations. This is a must. If you're going to take language fluency seriously, get them tested. Get them tested. Without testing, we're all just guessing. We don't really know where somebody's at. Later culture, form conclusions on the 14 major areas of culture. Understand the mindset of the local population at the worldview level. You can predict the responses to significant events. Understand the cultural hurdles that the gospel will need to cross. Invest in deep relationships across economic, caste, and political strata. This was not possible earlier because you didn't know the language. The first thing to advance is usually your language, then after it comes your culture. You can't get into the deeper areas of culture until you know the language better because you don't have the language to investigate it yet. So these are the things, and I'm going a little bit faster now because I know my time is starting to whittle away. You're investing across the board. You're investing, your family's investing. The best way to learn a language and culture, live with the people. Live with the people. Be with them in their context. Not for weeks, not for months, for years. Years at a time, coming out for breaks, coming out to see your family, coming out for those periods of time, but then going back in. Immersion is the best way to learn a language and culture to full fluency. Things sending churches should ask. What is the goal we are sending our missionary out for? Are we sending them out to dig wells? Noble. Good. Know that. Know what you want them to go out for. But if you're sending them out to plant a church in a cross-cultural context, know that as well. What is your position on fluency and why? Have a stated, documented position on fluency. If you have missionaries leaving your home church that have no idea where you stand, their standards will be malleable. They'll be adjustable based on what the agency is looking at and what their local team there has decided. You as a church, help them land on those issues. How does the agency your missionaries with view fluency? Huge, huge question. Most agencies in this day and age view fluency as an excellent thing, a wonderful thing, a huge, huge thing that could be of great benefit, but not mandatory. It's optional in many ways. You can get fluent. We hope you get fluent. We pray you get fluent, but it's not mandated. Unless it's mandated, most people will never reach worldview fluency. They'll reach market fluency. They won't reach worldview fluency. Will they give or provide for regular language and culture evaluations? You want to know this with the agency that you're sending. How will you know when you are ministry ready, worldview fluence? How will you know when your ministers, you as the missionary, how will you know when you're ready? Most language evaluations that I have been on, where we went in and we did the final language evaluation and we patted the guy on the back, you're ready. You know who the guy in the room was that thought he was the least ready of all? The missionary himself. The missionary himself. All this crushing weight 
of the language learning process comes off and another weight replaces it. Now it's time to get to work. Now this job rests on me. No longer is language and culture study the driving force of what I'm here for. Now I actually have to engage in this thing that I've been planning for years to get to. He's usually the last guy that thinks he's qualified to have somebody that says, yes, you are. Now get out there and do it. That's a very, very big gift that you can give your missionary. Things sending churches should think about. Uh, Last slide and I'm done. Know the character and the aptitude of the ones you will send. Know their character. Oh my goodness. If you wouldn't make them a greeter in your home church, don't send them out to be a missionary. If they have a hard time communicating in English, don't send them out to be a cross-cultural ambassador for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Know their aptitude as well. And again, I'm putting a shameless plug in here for Radius. To judge the aptitude. Radius, the program of Radius does not exist for the agencies. It doesn't even exist for individual missionaries. We love them. We care about them. It exists for the church. So you have an instrument to vet somebody from your body that is considering cross-cultural ministry. Let's find out how they do in Tijuana before we sink thousands of dollars, send them across the ocean, and figure out that they're not really equipped. They don't really have the aptitude for this. Know that before you send them. If you don't send them to us, send them to some organization. Know if they've got what it takes to actually do this job. And every other, every other, well, I won't get into it. Most jobs, we will vet people before we stick them in there. We don't like people who enjoy using scalpels to become doctors on the first try. We usually vet them pretty strongly before we let them cut into people. Same thing, but we're handling something more precious than the human body. We're handling the Word of God. Ask to be involved in early decisions. When your missionary is being sent out, who are they going to go with? What agency? Who are they going to partner with? Who are the people that they're thinking about working with? What country will they go to? How do they intend to plan uh, intend, intend to plan the church? Those are the questions. The church should be involved. The driving motor behind the missionary should always be the church. The church, the church. The missionary will know the most. He should communicate that to you. But you should be involved in these decisions. These are things that I would think through as a missions church pastor. Ask for timesheets. You know what? Show us what you've done for the last two months. Put that on a timesheet. These are things that we do at Radius. Every 15 minutes of your day will be on a timesheet. So we know this is what you're doing during the time that you're down there. So we can see weaknesses. This is typically a weakness for younger people coming up, knowing where their time is going. For you as the church, you should have some record. What are my missionaries doing over there? What are they doing with their time? And to be able to explain that. There are explanations for that, but you would want to know that. Don't expect converts in the early years. Don't expect converts the first year over there. Why? Because they shouldn't be sharing the gospel. Because they shouldn't be sharing the gospel because they don't have any tools to share it with. If they don't know the language and they're starting to talk about hundreds and thousands of converts, red flags should be popping up right and left. You should be careful when you hear those types of stories. That will be one of the emphases of my talk coming up in the next hour. Don't expect converts in the early years because you're not capable of communicating the gospel clearly yet. Help with CLA evaluations. Put your money where your mouth is. If you want your missionary to be fluent and the agency does or does not provide evaluations, you provide them. Get behind them. We will set a portion of our support aside so that we can send people over to evaluate. If you're serious about fluency, if you're serious about your members getting fluent, 
Put your money where your mouth is. Get yourself behind. Find a group. There are other groups out there. We have a group. We're starting to gather more and more guys that will go over and give language evaluations for RADIUS grads. If we don't know them, we'll give them an evaluation, but at least with the RADIUS system, we'll know, okay, this is what they know, how they applied what they've done. And encourage them in the long haul for learning two languages to full worldview fluency and celebrate with them when the goals are achieved. But don't drop that bar. Fluency is non-negotiable because the gospel needs to be communicated clearly. If it's not communicated clearly, then it's unclear. And an unclear gospel is what Paul would say in Galatians chapter 1 is a false gospel. The price is too high. Don't drop that bar. All right. Five minutes. I went over time by five questions. We'll do questions for three minutes, and then we'll get you down there for a break. I know I pile drive through a ton of material. My apologies on that. Do you have some key aptitudes you'd be looking for? Or Yeah. There will be... I think there's about 10 radius grads uh, here. Their language evaluations will look at certain things that they're good at. Women tend to advance faster in the first two stages of languages, and then the men slowly catch up with them. Women advance generally overall a little bit faster in language. Why would that be? Because women like to talk. Women like to talk. People who don't talk usually don't learn language very fast. Those of you who are shy, who are quiet, who want to be cross-cultural ministers, you're going to have to grow in that. Those are things, those are habits. We'll look at that type of aptitude. We'll look at discipline levels. That's why timesheets are so helpful, because it judges where you put your time. Are you disciplined enough to get off of Facebook after two minutes, not 20? Are you disciplined enough to put the Netflix away for the first two years? I'm going to dive into this language. I'm not going to let my mind wander to other things. Those types of aptitudes. And then there are just flat out some people that have been given a God-given gift. There's one particular married lady here. She's here this week. I'm not going to say who it is. But uh, she has two children, and she smoked most of the single ladies in the Radius class. She has an aptitude, a gift for languages. And to have that measured, to know that, but not to rely on it. Usually people who have heard that they're really good, sometimes they do rather poorly when they reach the field because their ego has gotten them up, and then when they meet the face-to-face language that they're going up against, I thought it would be easier. I thought it would be easier. Language is hard. It's probably the hardest thing you will do in the cross-cultural endeavor for you to square with that. This is the most difficult thing I'll probably do for in my whole life. This is the most difficult. Everything else will be secondary. Now let's go out and do it. If you can square with that, you probably are on the right track to your floor. That's a roundabout way to answer that. That's good. Is it better to learn? Like if you have language, is it better to learn one and then the other or try one simultaneously? Usually one than the other, just so you're able to navigate the society. <clears throat> if the gateway language, that initial language, to get fluent in that for the sake of your business, to get sick for visas, passports, those types of things. Very, very helpful. And that way you can work with the local population as well. And then doing the second one secondarily. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I, that's a great gift. I was in the same situation. I was raised overseas, and so one of the thoughts when I was going through, I was debating whether I was going to go to Venezuela or go to Papua New Guinea. And I ended up going back to Papua New Guinea because I already knew that language. I had one language out of the way. But it, getting to that second language, that's still I still had to learn BCS, which was a very difficult language. But yeah, that's a huge gift. And to be able to leverage that, I think that's great. The more languages you know, the faster you learn other languages. People who have already had those pathways kind of burrowed out in their minds, People who know French, they learn Spanish a lot faster. People who know French and Spanish, they end up learning Arabic a lot faster. Not, I don't want to say a lot faster. They learn it faster than the average person who has never learned any other language other than the one that they're born with. But people who know more languages learn languages faster. Yeah. No. That's a whole class. So she asked a great question. People who are going into that secondary language and they don't have characters, that's the situation that we went into in Yembe Yembe. They have no written language. You develop a language for them, and we will teach you how to do that. That's where those tools like phonetics, phonemics, orthography, distilling those all those sounds down. What's the symbol that would represent the A, the A, and the U? Uh? Is that all one sound? Do the language hearers hear different sounds there? Do the language speakers actually hear two different sounds? Is there a glottal in there? Are there different things? That's, we'll teach you how to do that. But that's where the benefit of learning, having those tools. If you don't have those tools, incredibly difficult to break that down. But imagine that singles and married without children would probably have more time to devote to these things than those that have a lot of family obligations. True, true, yeah. If you have five kids, it's harder to learn a language typically. If you have one, it's a little bit easier. The math just works out. So, yeah, I mean, I'm not going to give you family planning advice, but think wisely. Be a wise servant. You've sacrificed much to make it to that third context. Think through. Think through your future. We'll talk about that down at Radius. Any other questions? What did BEC stand for? Becoming equipped to communicate. The BEC and the GPA, Growing Participator Approach, those are the two primary secondary language learning programs that are out there today. Secondary meaning it's not the primary language of the country. All right, guys, let me pray for us and I'll let you go. Lord Jesus, thank you so much. Thanks for these ones in here, uh, the ones who will be ambassadors to take your name somewhere, and the pastors and the missions pastors who will stand behind them, raise them up. Lord, we pray that they would be competent, clear gospel communicators when they reach that next context. For your sake, Lord, for your glory, among all peoples, all nations, all languages. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. Thanks, guys.